0: you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. God, we come now asking that you would speak to us through your word. We come hungry for more of you, thirsty for the grace you have prepared for us, and we know you will meet us now. So Lord, open up our hearts as well as our minds and to feast on Christ, who is the Word of God, in Christ's name, amen. In the past several weeks, we have been going through the book of Psalms to understand different attributes of God. And it's important for us to understand who God is so that we respond to the nature of God with worship. Often we talk about being grateful for the things that God has done for us, and we should be, but often we forget that we ought to be grateful for who He is, that He, in His very nature, is worthy of our praise. And so as we scour through the book of Psalms, and study various passages that talk about different attributes of God. We want these pictures of God to inform our faith and fuel our worship as we seek to be faithful as God's people. Mark Twain once said, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Classic Mark Twain. And I think he captures what is true for all of us in this thing called Christian journey. As we continue to walk with the Lord, God becomes more holy than we could ever imagine. And at the same time, we become more sinful than we could imagine. Ever imagined. And the gap between who God is and what He demands of us and who we are and the reality we live in, it widens. And that's where the gospel comes in. The cross continues to grow and it casts a longer shadow as we continue to journey in this thing called faith and understand more and more of His abundant love, compassion, and mercy for us. It's as Aslan said to Lucy in Prince Caspian, every year you grow, you will find me bigger. I think that's very true, isn't it? The cross becomes bigger and we have all the more reasons to worship. Here in Psalm 103 in the text that was read to us, King David is no longer a young shepherd. Those are days gone by and now as A seasoned king, looking back at his life, he sees the full picture of God's compassion for him. And here in Psalm 103, he pens these words, actually for all of us, for God's people, to be able to join with him in giving God praise. Even before he gets to why we should praise God, he sort of jumps the gun and starts saying, Praise the Lord! Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. He gets so excited about what he's about to talk about that he forgets that why we should worship. And here, with descriptive words, David paints a picture of God's amazing grace. He has come to know. And if you read through the Old Testament, the life of David, you begin to understand just how great God's mercy is. We hold him as... An ideal king sometimes. But that wasn't always the case. You know that. He had many valleys himself, ones I'm sure he's very ashamed of. And yet, even through it all, God never forsook him. God remained his shepherd. He was always faithful toward him. And so, David here says, Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. There are two things we want to talk about this evening. First, we want to talk about the nature of worship. What is worship? And secondly, we'll talk about the basis for worship. Why do we worship? So let's go to our first point, the nature of worship. Perhaps you've heard of the adage, we become what we worship, and we worship what we love. We become what we worship, and we worship what we love. It actually has everything to do with our worship heart this word worship is an old english word derived from two words in fact worth ship but it's a lot more than attributing a price tag to god we don't get to play prices right with god when things are going well yes i bid high when things are not going so well eh, not so much No, God's worth is fixed, as David says at the end of Psalm 103. His throne, His reign is fixed. It's not conditioned upon our worship or the lack thereof. He is worthy of all of our praise, David reminds us. So if that's not worship, or if there's more to it than simply attributing worth to God, then what is worship? I would say worship is, it begins with seeing the worth of God but it continues in our response to that worth. You see, worship, I believe, is seeing the worth of God and in response, setting our affections on him by giving all of our heart to the Lord. In other words, he becomes our all in all. Our great treasure, our highest prize that we seek for with our eyes fixed as we run this race of faith. He is the finish line. He is our prize. He's the medal. He is our everything. And everything else, even the good things that God blesses us with, become secondary things. In all of these domains, in my personhood, in my goals, in my work, in my relationships, that our worship helps us to no longer live for our name, to no longer seek our will, no longer live for our kingdom, but to exalt His name, do His will, and to establish and work for His kingdom. Isn't this what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? As God's people who are then called to a relationship with Him, we are then to no longer live for these things, but for Him, His name, His will, His kingdom, especially during our free moments. Archbishop William Temple once said, Your religion is what you do with your solitude, your religion is what you do. With your solitude. The sum total of what you love, what you worship, showcases itself in your free moment. You see, what occupies your free time also occupies your heart. We worship what we love. You didn't realize it, but daydreams are sacred and they reveal the various idols that are deeply lodged in our hearts. And the only way we can get rid of these idols is not by working hard to pluck them from our heart, but to behold something far greater, far more beautiful than money, success, relationships, and so on. And we find that in our God. And our worship gets expressed in various ways. It shows in the way we care for the city The way we build relationships and serve our neighbors, and even the way we engage our co-workers in our workplace. This is what we call the broad view of worship, which includes everything that we are and we do. And here in Psalm 103, David sort of says, look, all of that is good, but I want you to, in light of who God is and all that he has done, to give him thanks. And that's what, Hebrew, uh, what the Hebrew phrase, bless the Lord, means. It means to give God thanks. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. We must resist the temptation to reduce worship to either a theological abstraction or a demonstrative emotionalism. We must avoid the dangers of both emotionalism, just empty expressions of our heart, and intellectualism, where everything just dwells right here. It seems to say that God wants not just our mind and not just our heart, but he wants all of us. Isn't that what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He doesn't say love the Lord your God with all your mind, 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 mind. And I think we in the PCA tradition need to be reminded of that every once in a while. Someone once said the longest distance is the distance from here to here. What we know to be true about God, about ourselves, about life, often fail to make it down here. It's not a reality in which we live out of. But David says we ought to worship with all that we are. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. All of our self, our functional capacity as human beings, including eating and drinking these basic physical there i say human things ought to be laid on the altar as sacrifice to god pleasing and holy sacrifice to him aw tozer a preacher from a generation ago called this the sacrament of life this word sacrament is a fancy word that simply means an external expression of an inward grace and that's why we call things like the table and baptism sacraments. They're a lot more than what you see, it reflects the inward grace that we have come to know and believe. And Tozer says if that is the case, then everything we do ought to be an external expression of the inward work that God has committed Himself to doing. Our work the way we handle relationships, the way we view and understand and serve the city, all of these things ought to reflect the grace of God that we have come to know, the promises that we hold on to, the future kingdom that will come, and the presence of His Spirit that is always with us. But worship is not so easy, is it? As David points out, One of the biggest challenges to living this sacrament of life is forgetfulness. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forgetfulness, to be clear, is not a bad thing. According to the psychologists, uh, forgetfulness is part of memory. It's the other side of the coin. In fact, forgetfulness helps us to remember some of the more important things in life. For example, if you were to, after worship, go to Target, right, and you park your car in a particular spot, and you go and do your business and come back, it helps that you forgot where you parked the past 10 times you were at Target. Otherwise, you would not be able to remember where you parked. You would go from one spot to another thinking, wait, I thought I parked my car here. You see, forgetfulness is actually very functional and practical to our remembering. But David here is not talking about that kind of forgetfulness. It's not like, oh, where, where are my keys? I forget. No, it's not that at all. Rather, David talks about the kind of forgetfulness that grows out of pride, that basically says, God, I don't need you. And God warned Israel of this back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Listen to these words. Moses spoke, once you enter the promised land, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, he says, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And David is saying, Be careful that this pride doesn't creep out of your heart. And if you ever think that we are somehow immune from such pride, you're wrong. Our heart is like a misaligned wheel that constantly pulls us to the edge. And if we're not always correcting it, bringing it back on the center, it's going to take us off the edge. We must, therefore, create multiple spiritual touch points throughout the day and throughout the week where we remind ourselves of this gospel, the good things that Christ has done for us, so that our heart does not harden over time. And we, like the Israelites, say, I have done this. I have accomplished this for myself. And I see this in my own life when I forget to get in touch with my gospel reality, and I'm not in the Word, and I'm not praying, then all of a sudden, I see the world differently, and various negative emotions surface, and quite often. And really, one of the the true tests in all of this is driving in D.C. You know, especially around this time of the year, you get a lot of people who are driving not with their eyes forward, but upward, And you wonder how more people aren't getting run over, right? And as I'm sitting there behind these people who are driving like this, I'm like, come on, get out. Anger, frustration, and people all of a sudden become objects for me to run over. Like I wish I had a big foot and just, right? Not that I want to harm anybody, but that I could get where I need to go. prayer makes a big difference, even in my driving. It really does. People no longer become objects to crush, but they become people, image bearers, enjoying the city. And there's a part of me that wants to pray and bless them. And this, I I think, is a picture of what David wants us to understand that if we're in touch with the gospel reality, then worship is natural. And that worship gives shape to how we think, how we feel, how we interact, and so on. So that's worship. Then why do we worship? Okay, Why do we worship the basis of worship, our second point? Why do we worship? Worship is not more, is a lot more than simply stirring our hearts, right? To, to come up with uh, you know, reasons for worshiping. It, it, every, every Sunday when we begin our worship service, I don't know how you feel sometimes, but I feel like I gotta muster up worship, you know? Gotta like work it up, just like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get ready, I gotta get ready. And sometimes, you know, I, I do some self talk like Charlie Brown. You know, it's like, God has done all this for you. And uh, I get into this little, I don't know, where me talking to myself and answering myself and trying to get myself into the heart of worship. But I think David says, yes, we need that sometimes, and we see David doing that. But more importantly, we need to remind ourselves of the gospel. You see, worship is fueled by the gospel. They cannot exist apart from the other. You see, in the Old Testament, this is how covenant worked. Covenant is a fancy word for an oath, a promise that God had made, uh, God made with us. And it's always on the basis of a relationship where God reveals himself, and and in response, we ought to live our lives in such a way. And that's really what worship is all about. We come in the context of relationship with Him, and we behold who He is as He reveals Himself. And we respond to the revelation of God in worship. Here, starting with verse 3, David spells out the reasons why we must worship. Verse 3, he says, Who forgives all your iniquity. The word all here includes our sin of omission, the good we did not do, and sin of commission, the evil we did. And it includes all our past, present, and future sin. God took all of that and nailed it on the cross in the person of Christ so that now as we own that for ourselves by placing our faith in Christ and the work that was accomplished for us on the cross, then God then sees us as if we had never sinned before. Do you believe this? In one sense, we read a verse like this that says, who forgives all your sins, and we sort of glance over to the end, but we never pause To deeply reflect upon what these words really mean. So often we're trying to work our way to forgiveness by doing good things, and we keep a list of all the things that we have done for God that week. And based on that list, we come and we feel pretty good. And we feel like we deserved a place here Sunday afternoon so we could worship. But then the opposite is also true, is it not? If we haven't done everything we hoped we would, and we weren't as good as we, were, we thought we would be, we come here and we feel guilt. And we're, try, we're wrestling with that. The scripture says he has forgiven all of our iniquity, all of our sin. In the book, The Great Expectations, Charles Dickens who was known for his dislike of established church, uh, tells a story of a man named Pip who grows up as, you know, this poor peasant, and now he's become this wealthy gentleman in the big city. And uh, he lives this lavish life, one that he cannot afford. And towards the end of the story, Pip is now faced with debt collectors, who are knocking down his door and asking for money, and he realizes that he can't, there's no way he can pay it back. And he gets sick and you know goes into this hallucination, and he's not sure what he saw, but in the end, there's his brother-in-law, Joe. A simple blacksmith who comes and does the unthinkable. To Pip's surprise, he realizes that his brother-in-law. Paid for all of his debt. See, Charles Dickens, even though he didn't like the established religion, he knew the gospel well. His father was a Navy chaplain. And here and in other parts of the book, I think he tucks in the gospel. I mean, how much more clear can you get than this? The one who is despised, the one who is rejected a simple blacksmith pays our debt. This is the gospel that Christ came, unassuming, not with pomp and circumstance, but born in a manger to live the life that you and I could not, so that when we come face to face with our sin, we also read words read, uh, words written, in blood, paid in full. And eventually, as we believe this, live this out in our life, He's going to come back. He's going to come back, and He's going to heal us of all our disease. And this is the hope that we live with, that one day, when we behold that glory face to face, that we shall become like Him, and we will be free from all the consequence of sin, verse 3 says. Verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit. This is a metaphor for a spiritual condition. We have dug for ourselves a hole that we we can't get out of. Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit before selling him off. But Jesus, our brother, he jumps in the pit with us, does he not? And he goes to hell and back so that he could claim us as his own. It doesn't end there. After he lifts us out of the pit, verse 4 says he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This imagery of him bestowing dignity, brushing off the dirt, and even before we could realize what's going on, he honors us. With glory beyond words. And then, verse five, he satisfies us with good. And IV translates that as good things. And I love how Christian faith affirms our humanity. You see, God not only creates us as human beings and celebrates who we are, but he intends on satisfying the deepest longings of the heart. And c s. Lewis, his issue is that uh, that we are too easily satisfied. He doesn't say you should repent of your longings. He doesn't say you should you know really check your heart because you know you, you want these good things. Rather, he says you're far too easily satisfied. And he provides an imagery which I think is really accurate. We go from basically dumpster to dumpster, looking for food and whatever else we could scavenge so we could somehow meet the longings of our hearts when God has prepared a feast for us. He satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. You know, people have always been in search of the fountain of youth ever since probably history began. And even today, we have magic pills and and various diets and exercises that promise to restore your youth. And if none of that works, then you go for the sure thing, right? Rodden and Fields. Have you heard of this thing? It's like miracle in a tube. You know, You apply it to your face and you lose 20 years of your life. And I've seen my friends post this on my Facebook, and it's like You know, before, it's like this really haggard old person, and after, like a three-year-old, supple, like, I'm like, what? No, really? I almost want to say, look, God promised to renew our youth, but that is on the other side of heaven, not now, okay? So stop purchasing these things. Stop trying to sell me these things. I don't want them. Rather, as Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's what renews us. So if you want youthful energy, I'm sure exercising will help, and proper diet will help too. But get connected to the gospel. Get it in your heart, in your system. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? Okay, thank you, all three of you. And I love this chain of grace. John Calvin said it well. He said, look, read these these verses, and he says, sin forgiven, power broken, penalty averted, honor bestowed, completely satisfied, very nature renovated until we are then sons and daughters in the house of God. It is good, isn't it? God covers all the bases and he lavishes us with grace upon grace upon grace. And even though we get it free, it wasn't cheap. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. When we get to heaven, we're not going to simply look back at all the things that he had done, he has done here on this side of eternity and give thanks. Every day for the rest of eternity we will see new dimensions of God's grace and it will blow our minds and we will prostrate in worship before him. Just when you think it cannot get better, it does. My wife and I, we, uh, for our 11th year uh, wedding anniversary, we uh, decided to binge a bit uh, because for our 10th anniversary, we took all our kids and went to a local Chinese restaurant and... uh, well, we stayed under budget. I think the whole meal was like 60 bucks, and uh, we made a mess of ourselves, and we thought, okay, you know what? Wedding anniversary has got to be more special than this. Yes. so for our 11th, we actually hired a babysitter, and uh, we went out. I know, pra- praise God. For- thank you. Uh, we went out, and uh, we went to this place called Black Salt. Have you guys heard of this in Palisades? And uh, we were flipping through the menu. We thought, you know what? Let's spend some money. To... Let's splurge. Let's... Let's live a little. So we, we decided to go with the five-course tasting menu. I know I'm Asian. I'm supposed to be good at math, but I'm not. Um, that's why I'm not an engineer. Um, but I can count to five, right? One, two, three, four, five. So after ordering this, we paced ourselves for five dishes because that's what we paid for. 5 course tasting menu. So the first dish comes out, amazing. Second, even better. Third, even better. And I'm like, you know what, it can't get better. So I'm going to cheat a little here and eat less of the next dish. Guess what? The fourth one comes out and it's even better. And we're expecting our dessert now, but then it's not dessert. It just keeps, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. And we're like, what in the world? We were so I mean, we were blown away by all the food, but then we thought, wait a minute, are they going to charge us for a nine-course meal here? And sure enough, you know, the dessert came out, and at that point, we weren't sure, like, how to begin the conversation with the waiter. Like, you made a mistake, but we're not going to, you know, yeah. So we're like, oh, excuse me, um, I thought we ordered the five course, and I stress the five, right? Five course tasting menu. He said, you did, you did. Uh, I'm like, well, I counted nine. He's like, you did, you did. And I'm like, is my check going to reflect the latter or the fourth? No, he's like, you know, the the chef is in a good mood. Just unusual, uh, like unusual good mood. And he just wanted to just give you free food. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, does he do this regularly? Because, you know, wedding anniversary happens every year. We would love to come back. Um, And we walked out of there with our bellies full and our hearts full as well. And we thought, man, I think this is going to be a glimpse of what's to come in heaven. We're going to be amazed at God's grace for us. Do you understand? And we are not gonna to have to look very far into our personal history to come up with a handful of things to be thankful for. We just have to think about now, his abundant mercy for us. You see, if heaven is us floating from one cloud to another, playing the harp, I'm not sure if I wanna be there. I don't like the harp in particular, rather play the electric guitar with a lot of distortion. But you know, this, it just doesn't do it for me. But I think in heaven, we're going to see the depth of His grace for us, and it's going to floor us. And all the things that we thought were treasures here on earth, all the things that we worked so hard for, all the things that we thought we couldn't live without, all of a sudden all these things will take their proper place and they will pale in comparison to Jesus. I don't know about you, but I want that. And the best part of that is we get to experience that even now here on this side of heaven. We get to see glimpses of that. And that's what David is saying here. Verses 13 through 16, he says, As a father shows compassion to his child, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why? Verse 14, because he knows. He knows that we are but dust. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like uh, flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it, and it is gone and its place knows it no more. We, we, we are like the cherry blossoms right here in D.C. We come out, we look, we look beautiful for two weeks and we're gone, right? You add strong wind and storm and maybe a week. God knows us. He knows we're but grass and flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, yet he lavishes upon us love Love that we cannot even comprehend. He is committed to doing good for us. From everlasting to everlasting, verse 17, the Lord's love is with those who fear him, and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep their covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Do you live in this reality? Does his grace for you overwhelm your heart? You know, we need to, before we begin our day, flipping through our emails, our Facebook, or even catching a Pokemon, okay, we need to park our hearts right here in the gospel and let it minister to us until our duty becomes joy, as Kettler says. We need to wrestle with the gospel and massage it into our hearts. Then worship becomes our joy. It's no longer something I have to muster up. Oh, worship. Oh, Bible reading. Oh, oh, no, if we really get it, it becomes our delight. That's why the psalmist says, Come. Taste that the Lord is good. Do you understand? And I know some of you do. You have wrestled with the gospel, and it was sweet to you. And David says, this is where we need to begin our day. This is what needs to inform our faith, give shape to who we are and everything we do. Let me close this with this thought Here in verses six to 12, David, he's thinking about an example that he could use, a shared story that everyone would get. And he goes to Exodus. And here, basically he says, "Look, this is the culmination, the ultimate example of God's compassion for his people." In fact, verse eight is a direct quote from uh, Exodus 34 where God said to Moses, this is who I am. This is my glory. And David basically makes a point. Look, isn't our God compassionate? Isn't our God merciful? Isn't our God gracious? You see, David had no idea that God would actually do one better that he would not simply look down and remember his covenant, but that he would take on human form. He would come and be born as a baby in a manger and that he would go to the cross in order to lead our exodus, the bondage of sin, so that we can live in freedom even now here on this side of heaven and to enjoy all the promises that we will experience and live in one day. Behold, God's great love for us. And in the New Testament passage that we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, you cannot begin to understand just how deep, wide, high, and long God's love is. But that's what we're called to. As God's people, I pray that we would begin our day reflecting on remembering why we must worship and that everything we do throughout the day will be a one long thank you for God who has done everything for us. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for your abundant mercy and compassion for us. Thanks, God, that you never tire of loving us, As a father who delights in his son, you delight in us, you rejoice over us with singing and dancing. Help us to hear that melody deep in our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.